Mountain believes every brand should be on TV, regardless of budget or size. That's why their self-serve performance TV platform takes the difficulty and expense out of connected TV advertising. With Performance TV, you get access to tens of thousands of audience segments so you can always find your target customer. Mountain serves your ads exclusively on premium streaming networks to elevate your brand profile and auto-optimizes your campaigns thousands of times a day to ensure you're always at peak performance. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a long, long time friend, one of my very favorite people. Seth, you're in the category of people I like the most, but life circumstance see the least. So it's a pleasure to see you here today, at least on the screen, and we must reconvene for uh, lunch or dinner shortly, Seth. It's I guess I am long. flattered and frustrated at the same time. Thank you. I, I, I think I share that those exact sentiments. Seth is the CEO of Magnolia Media. He also holds a number of posts, and we're going to dig into all of them, at the University of, of Oxford and is one of the leading thinkers and thought leaders globally on the future of marketing, on the future of news. Uh, and uh, I am absolutely thrilled to get a chance to have you here on Great Mind, Seth. So welcome. Thank you very much. I'm a fan. All right. So l let's get into it, Seth. We, we met years ago. Uh, when you were at a place that I know is near and dear to you, and that's the New York Times. Yes. And you've had a catbird seat at the evolution of that particular genre of the media. Let's talk about what you saw coming when you were there as the world shifted from analog to digital. Did the industry blow it? And where have they had unexpected success, as I think they have had, uh, in particular, in more recent years? So that's sort of a loaded question, but your perspective on this subject is so unique. Uh, and uh, I'd love to start there. Yeah, I mean, did the industry blow it is, um, is a general question. And I think it's that the structure of the industry wasn't ready. Uh, there was a great comfort in the monopoly that existed amongst the news industry. Because they didn't really just monopolize truth, although that existed. What they really monopolized was the connection between mass media that was trusted and the audiences that they served. And that's why particularly particularly in the U.S., news existed in fiefdoms of geography, right? So you had a Chicago Tribune, you had an L.A. Times, and they weren't necessarily working together because it wasn't about that. It was never about scale. It was about owning your marketplace, and being the only place, right, that a trusted ad could be seen that was brand safe, that was deeply credible with its audience, that had a repetition, uh, a deep penetration within a certain marketplace. And so it wasn't that the news failed so much as the business model, which was a very comfortable position of monopoly, got attacked, as so many other industries have during a time of this great digital innovation that we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years. So I think what has changed the most is the need for news organizations to market themselves. All right. And that's why at Oxford, we have the, the, um, the Oxford News Marketing Program, which I'm honored to be one of the two heads of, along with 
my colleague, uh, uh, Andrew Stephen, who's the associate dean of the business school and runs, he's one of the great marketing thinkers in the world. Um, we are working with news publishers trying to say to them, you have to think like a product marketer now in a way that you haven't had before. And one of the first things we ask those news publishers when they come to the class is, what are your brand assets? And inevitably, that's not a question that they're asked often, number one. And number two, their response is trust. Our brand asset is trust, which is great. And it probably is true, but it isn't enough. It used to be enough. It used to be enough to own that relationship with the consumer. It used to be enough to be the trusted source of opinion or fact in your marketplace. Um, and it used to be enough to sort of say to marketers, you must work with us. That's not the case anymore. And so the trust is table stakes, but it's not the asset that's actually going to get someone to subscribe or to read or to share or more deeply engage or even to feel a part of the brand and in terms of, of affinity in the same way. And so now news organizations for the first time, if we want to look backwards and say, yes, they hit this sort of a horrible market position of being completely disrupted, which they did. And there are certainly immense financial pressures still to this day trying to pick apart the news industry, which we should not uh, uh, um, decrease the, the understanding of the seriousness of that. Um, hedge funds and the like that are picking apart news organizations. But there's also this sense that news organizations have never really had to market themselves. And you look at what the Times is doing so well, they're winning can lions for their ad campaigns. That's not something you would ever think of a news organization ever having to do or even a dream of actually accomplishing. But the truth is most news organizations don't have the budget that the New York Times does. And so I, what gets me very excited is this. The, the, the solution to me is a, actually a, a simpler one than we all think. It's making news organizations better marketers. Because if they are better marketers of their product, we all know the product is good. But for some reason, most of the planet that is able to financially support a news organization doesn't. So we have a marketing challenge. Somehow our industry that can sell cheeseburgers and, and soap and everything else has not done its best work for selling this most civically important element. And, and you just tipped where I wanted to go next, which is civically important. The role of news organizations in keeping us all honest, whether that's government, whether that's the mm -hmm. private sector, is absolutely vital, uh, as is uh, the greatest work product, if you will, of that, which is long-form investigative journalism. Right. Are we as a society in a bad place as these organizations have gotten financially weaker uh, and have cut, cut, cut? Uh, are we creating risk for society that the objective police, if you will, is no longer able to do their job as effectively as they once were? Yeah, no question, right? And I think we all felt that was the case, and now we have data to back it up, which is we're seeing lower levels of voter registration where there are news deserts in the U.S. We're seeing more um, strict single-party voting in those marketplaces. Why? Because it's reductive thinking, right? I am a part of a political team. I'm not interested in reading news. I might not even, if there is a news organization in my marketplace because I've been told by my political team not to trust it, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, just assume that it has a, a no value to me or that it's even trying 
to disinform or misinform me. And so we see single party voting. We see lower voter registration, lower voter engagement. Um, certainly, we all feel, although I don't know the proof is there yet, that we're going to see higher levels of corruption amongst small government. And the problem, of course, is there's no one to report it. There's no one to hold it accountable. But that's not the fault of journalists, right? And I think often when the news organizations need to make uh, uh, financial decisions, and by the way, I've been the CEO of a media company, right, of a joint venture of four of the largest news companies in the country. So I come to this with great admiration for journalism and also having been inside the room where those budget decisions have to be made. Those aren't easy choices. No one is sitting there counting their gold coins for the most part and thinking, how many journalists can I fire today? But the business has to change in order to support the civic mission. And I think amongst marketers right now and advertisers, there's a real opportunity to support that journalism. And for some reason, I have a couple of theories on this, there has been a real break where advertisers, since that's what we're here to talk about, right? They don't feel the same compulsion to support news that they did in the past. They don't see the same value from it. Uh, they don't see, they believe the same ROI from it. Um, and they also don't see the same sort of civic value publicly to supporting that news that they used to. In fact, they might even see danger from it. And so what that what does that do within these markets? It absolutely weakens civic engagement, safety, um, uh, a sense of, of actually integrating with other people and other cultures within your own uh, community. And so we find ourselves in these bubbles, right? And, and I know that's not a new concept, but it will get worse before it gets better if we don't solve the news marketing issue. It really is the linchpin. Uh, we always wonder, right, how do you make, how can I really make a difference in what I do? And what I would ask, since I know most of the people who are listening to your podcast right now work in the ad industry and they're interested, they're, they're listening to something called Great Minds, which might also be aggressive marketing in my case, but okay. Um, if you are someone who cares very deeply about advertising and marketing, see what you can do to help your local news organization. If you've got this superpower, Imagine the impact you could have if you were helping a news organization get better at what they do. Let's talk about um, what you're doing at Oxford here to really dig in. It's so interesting. Uh, you really on the forefront of looking at some of these issues which have tremendous, not only business importance, but these are fabric of society, you know, holding us all together issues. Can we dig into what you're doing there? Um, at the Said School at Oxford, because it's really interesting. Sure. So there are a couple of programs that I've been honored to integrate with. Um, one is I serve as the head of the one of the two heads of the news marketing program. Another is um, as an associate fellow across the uh, the marketing department of the business school, which has been a, a true honor, um, and to get to work with some of the the absolutely world class academics and researchers that are there. Um, if you have not had a chance to visit. The school um, or interested in learning more, certainly their website is available, but the, the core of understanding um, what is happening for our industry uh, at Oxford to me is to engage with a group that I'm honored to serve as co-chair of the executive committee uh, called the Future of Marketing Initiative. And this is a group that is composed of some of the biggest and most important and influential brands on earth, by which I mean uh, both Google and Meta, um, WPP, Kantar, um, the UN on Stereotype Alliance, um, Teradata, uh, Reckitt Benkiser, and more. And we get together as a group several times a year and discuss the issues that we are facing our business today, 
And to better understand from the students and postdoc researchers that are there at the school, what will the future of marketing look like? And the, the research that's going on there is riveting. And so the access to that research is really something that's thrilling in these meetings and on a regular basis. So for instance, in, in recent meetings, we've discussed everything from the power of audio as it mixes with augmented reality to really drive a deeper engagement. Um, one of the, uh, and I, I hope not to misrepresent any of the work because I'm going to be uh, uh, very, I'm going to simplify because it's my understanding of their research. Um, one of the researchers there, a truly brilliant uh, uh, woman uh, professor who is actually from Florida, but is teaching there in Oxford, um, was studying the power of in wine tastings, what suggesting uh, certain words while people were testing wine, were tasting wine, what, uh, what the sort of mental and palate impact are of that. Um, understanding the power of persuasion in a way that goes beyond the sort of digital tools that we all rely on today. Because the digital tools are absolutely compelling, but we will eventually hit a wall where we've sort of squeezed all the juice out of the, all of that sort of hyper-targeting. And we will come back to where science and creativity can really drive another wave of effectiveness and of efficiency, but also of creativity. And so the students and, and postdoc students there are studying at a very rich level what changes our minds. Right. And not just the psychology of it, but the technology of it. Um, they're also studying ethical issues. So we had a recent discussion around um, artificial intelligence created models that are completely synthetic. And are there ethics around are we taking jobs away? For instance, if you had an African-American uh, uh, synthetic model modeling clothes on Instagram, are you taking a job away from a deserving real human? Or should you celebrate that creativity? And so all of this is being considered in a context of some of the sustainability goals that are, are, are so many brands are tied into now um, and a sense of social responsibility. But at its core, understanding how the basics of marketing can now be applied with all of the new technology and new understanding. Um, if, if there's a, a brand out there that is interested in learning more, obviously I'm glad to help them. But the, the work that is going on there to me is unlike what I've seen from any other school because it starts with the foundation of marketing and then it pushes itself to really be a research-based institution to understand what the future of marketing will look like two, five, and 10 years from now. And if you can hear it in my voice, there is a glee in having these conversations because th there's only so many times we can discuss shopping cart abandonment, right? I want to I know what's coming down the road. And this is the place. And our business moves at such a pace of quarters and monthly results. And of course, we have to do that, right? You have to feed the, the force in order to be able to go to battle, right? But at the same time, as leaders, it's our job to do both the short and the long-term job at the same time. You know, as one of my great mentors, Alexis Birick, used to say to me, a great fighter can jab and also throw a big punch. And it's that same idea of I have to operate my business, but if I don't have my eye on the future or if I'm counting on others to tell me, I'm probably going to miss out. And, you know, we have lived through a time where brands have sort of been serial misses, if you will, right? Think how many times a new social platform came up that we all laughed off and now it becomes the most dominant force in the communication. I remember being in meetings where people laughed off Twitter. Why would anyone want to micro blog what they were doing that day? Certainly people have laughed off TikTok and Snap. And over and over again, when new things emerge, it is the, the human nature to go either let's try it a little 
and let someone else prove it, or let's laugh it off and see if it really lasts. And that is almost always a mistake. And so what we are trying to do is say, let's be forward looking in a way that the industry doesn't always allow based on our current marketplace and just the demands on all of us. And take this time, really block it off in your calendar to study the research, to understand and to hear each other about what the future of marketing is going to look like. Absolutely fantastic stuff. So let's stay here for a moment and talk about, uh, you you talked about persuasion, you talked about technology, of course, you talked about creativity. At its best, in my mind, as an old school thinker, great advertising evokes emotion. Yes. And that begins with a great creative idea. Talk about how you wrestle at Oxford that conflict, I'll use that word, between creativity and digital technology. You know, I, this isn't an Oxford answer, but it's it's one I've seen firsthand. There's a great uh, ad agency sort of creative platform business out there. It's a very small company uh, called Craftsman Plus. And its CEO um, uh, is, a, is a young guy. You'll see him lately on Bloomberg quite a bit. Um, commenting on sort of the future of digital media. And Alex, who's the CEO, is a good friend. And they have built an entire mobile advertising business around understanding how to take great creative, but gamify it to drive deeper engagement on mobile tech. And they're not the only ones doing it, but they're a really successful one that's doing it right now. Um, and I, to me, that taps into exactly what you're talking about. Creativity doesn't stop because there's great tech. Creativity should be fueled to be amplified because there's great tech. And so where, you know, and and I don't know that Craftsman wants me to discuss all the brands that they're working with, but they're truly some of the largest uh, uh, market cap companies on earth that are working with them, even very sophisticated digital tech companies who still turn to them because they have expertise around the technology that amplifies creativity. And so, you know, I think back to actually, you you brought up the New York Times early on. I think one of the smartest things they did journalistically uh, years back, and this is actually when I was still there, is they created these pods that didn't separate creative and journalist from technologists. They created working pods so that those two teams were together. So that from the moment an an investigative story was being uh, uh, researched, the technologist was brought in to start thinking about how the story will be told. And that's why when a new big story breaks on the New York Times and you see this beautiful, rich storytelling and animations and side stories that you can link out to and the like, but in a very seamless uh, uh, format, it's because the technology is a part of the process. It's not an add-on after the creative work is done. And that has not once, as far as I've heard, change the perception of the trust in their news right i haven't heard anyone say because it's not gimmickry it's always organic and true to the creative and to the journalism that they're creating Um, now they are in a position of deep luxury because of the, the large bank of paying subscribers like me right who i will be a lifelong subscriber to the new york times uh i still even get the print edition by the way on the weekends and i love that ritual of it so they're funded by that most news organizations are not and can't afford all of the creative technologies and can't afford a marketing team often and certainly can't afford to compete for data scientists in a marketplace where everyone is out there. So in order for us to amplify the great creative ideas with the tech, we also have to create an industry sort of mindset and set of alliances that let these organizations tap into that tech. 
and that skill set. Because the, you know, the Des Moines Register will probably never have the money to go out and hire a bank of data scientists and creative tech people. But allied with all of their other brother and sister publications, they sure can. Okay, so let's stay here for a minute. Another fascinating uh, subject. So you're on the forefront of studying the future of marketing, the future of news. We have been bred as a culture now to get stuff for free, right? I'm not going to get the Tom Petty song right, uh, the, uh, exactly right from the last DJ, but he talks about, you know, all the things that you pay for that you used to get for free now, right? So how do we reconcile, I'll use the word conflict again, between ensuring these are viable businesses and a consumer base that is increasingly built on getting stuff for free and knowingly or unknowingly giving away all of our data as the price of admission. Yeah, and it's um, when you think about uh, the things that we have been trained to expect for free, like music, right? The music industry has figured out other models to make money, which is the live event. The news industry sometimes does live events, but there's certainly not enough to sustain the business. And so uh, the industry went very far towards scale in years past, right? As digital advertising emerged, it ran towards that and saw that as the way to make money. And there were all those lines years ago of uh, a print dollar equals a digital dime. It's probably more like a digital penny these days. And so they needed to drive as much scale as possible, make the product free. Um, and yet what we have found now, I think, and look at the situation that our, our politics are in and many of our communities are in, is that we're getting what we pay for. And, you know, it's funny, if someone said to you on the street, um, I've just cooked you a sandwich and it's going to make you feel great. Please eat this sandwich. It's for free on me. You would walk as fast as you could away from that person. But when it comes to finding out what's actually happening in terms of the safety of our families, the safety of our country, the way that we're interacting with each other, with each other we go, oh, yeah, the free one. Give me the free one. Why is it that we don't see the difference? It's because we don't see the impact as directly. And that's where marketing and communications comes in. It's not the fault of the product. It is the fault of the way it's positioned and it's understood within the marketplace. For some reason, people feel absolutely fine spending $19 a month subscribing to uh, movie services that they generally uh, uh, despise, right? They go on and look at them and they go, there's nothing to watch here, but I'm still going to pay 19 bucks next month and the month after that. But when it comes to the actual important news, I think there's another level of psychology, which is sometimes we don't want to know. We live in an era that is overwhelming, uh, uh, puzzling, uh, challenging. And so I think there is a bit of the psychology also of maybe I'm better off not knowing. And maybe I don't want to be challenged in my thinking because I'm just too overwhelmed by life itself. And so, and I think that has grown as people were isolated in their homes and uh, you know, over the past few years. And maybe they will emerge from that, but I don't think that's something we should count on. I think it's a story that needs to get told. You know, one of the great things that the news marketing program is I get to bring in a lot of my favorite people as guests. Uh, we had, in just in the last few uh, sessions, we had um, Brian Stelter, uh, of course, his show on CNN no longer, but it was during the run of his show. We had Jody Ginsburg on, who's the, oh, I admire greatly, who's the CEO of the Committee to Protect Journalists. And uh, a few weeks back, we had Sir Martin Sorrell. And, you know, I asked Martin, you know, you, I said, you are one of the agencies of record for Netflix. What is it that Netflix is doing to sell subscriptions that the news industry isn't? 
And he described in great detail the cycle of data-informed marketing and product production that goes on at Netflix. In that it's a never-ending cycle of serving up product, watching that feedback, understanding that, bringing it back into the organization, remarketing and customizing that message and then serving up product again. And that sort of infinity loop never ends. And he described that to the group, not as a project, but as a practice. And I think the news industry can learn a lot from that. Now, obviously the news industry cannot change its core journalism based on customer feedback. There are things you have to report as a news organization that people might not think they need or want to read, but it's the job of a news organization to report those things. Um, but there is in the packaging of that news, there is in the marketing of that news, there is in the packaging of subscription products, uh, uh, insight that can be gleaned from watching that behavior and understanding. And again, the more that those news organizations can be informed by that data, I think the better off they'll be, as long as they have a, a high wall between that and actually impacting the journalism itself. You just mentioned the word uh, again, so let's go to it. Um, the evolution of a lot of the businesses from an advertiser model to a subscription model. I think The Guardian in particular uh, mm -hmm. comes to mind as someone who's navigated that wave really well, the Times in more recent years as well. Uh, talk about that evolution and is that a positive for the future of news? Gosh, it really concerns me is the first answer. Um, as much as I want subscription dollars to sustain news, and I know we've been talking about it earlier in our conversation because I want anything to sustain news these days. I'm very concerned about the, the great, you know, we talk about the digital divide. Let's talk about informational poverty because that is what will emerge over time, right? And it's why we see divides even amongst parties that often divide also amongst certain demographies or income levels, right? Because the person who is making less and can't afford to invest in news will always be, felt, be fed the free poison. Right. And there are plenty of organizations out there that are making believe they are news, but they're really political propaganda arms. Then I, I will take my politics out of this and just say, I think we all know what those are. Um, that will always speed that product for free because making money is not necessarily their goal. Getting your vote, getting your opinion, getting you either or perhaps getting you not to vote because you're too frustrated. That's their goal. Right. And getting you to back a certain mission and uh, that drives some other mission for them. Uh, some sort of Trojan horse mission. All of that very much exists. And I don't mean to sound as cynical as I do right now, but what concerns me is if news becomes a luxury good, that is not good for anyone, subscriber and non-subscriber. Because if it only becomes a product that the wealthiest top percent uh, of the country and the world can afford, there are many more that can't. Um, and in the US, we all get to vote. So if you keep in mind, then I think the New York Times celebrated reaching 10 million uh, digital subscribers recently, right within the last year or so, which is a phenomenal accomplishment. And as I understand it, they did it a year ahead of their pre-stated goal from eight years earlier. But that still represents about 3% of all of American population. So here we are celebrating the most successful, most highly sustained, uh, most awarded news organization and it's still not reaching 97% of Americans. And so it, it is a great story, but it can't be the only story because we need to figure out a way to sustain all of those other news organizations that will reach those folks, or else we absolutely will have informational poverty. And if you go back through history 
and to when people have been trusting false sources, right? It's, it's the Voltaire thing, right? That anyone who can make you believe anything will get you to do horrible things, right? Um, I've just misquoted Voltaire, but you were with me. Uh, that will rear its head again. And we saw it, right? We saw it on January 6th and we will see it again. So the direct connection between informational poverty in concert with organizations whose motivation is not financial, but political. Um, and then on top of that, the uh, divide uh, on cable news is sort of the loudest voice. That's a recipe for sort of where we are now in many ways, isn't it? It is, but doesn't that say the difference to me I don't mean to come back to Bangladesh, but it's really within our industry has the power to change that, right? Because if you think of um, any product, even the most toxic products that over the years have been sold by the advertising community, and sometimes we have, right? Um, it's because we're really great at telling those stories. And we're really great at telling. So imagine representing a healthy product, a product that's great for society, that actually feeds accountability and can drive down your cost of living and can make you feel engaged with the world. And not only that, appreciate the arts around you and the culture around you and all the other great things that the news does for its community and a sense of connection to each other. Why haven't we done a better job of selling that to the very community that it connects? And it's because there hasn't been the same money in it or there hasn't been the same ability to invest. And in many people feel marketing is taking a chance and a gamble rather than a lock. And so we have to build that confidence and in the same way that uh, I, you know, the new the the marketing community pitched in to fight COVID, in the same way that it pitches in with great organizations like the Ad Council, where I was pleased to serve on the board for eight years, you know, which does just such phenomenal work. We need that, right? We need a mission of people to help the news because the news is not in a position to always help itself. Absolutely fascinating. Okay, I think we we uh, we covered a lot of ground. It's uh, fascinating subject. I think we may have to do a part two, Seth, just on this subject. So uh, I, I always consider you to be a genuine renaissance man. You've got such varied interests, always a great storyteller. Let's go to one of the other aspects of your life, uh, which is fascinating to me. And that's your longtime involvement with the Jerry Garcia Foundation uh, yeah. and how it happened and uh, what the ongoing work of the foundation does. I know we're both great music lovers, um, but I'd love to talk about the tremendous work that you're doing with uh, the Garcia Foundation. Yeah, so the foundation was created by uh, Menasha and Keelan Garcia. Menasha, of course, uh, uh, Jerry's widow and Keelan, his daughter. Um, they are phenomenal, warm, successful, brilliant women um, who brought together a group of people, uh, professionals from different areas, and also people who had been friends uh, with Jerry throughout his life, um, together to uh, do the things that we believe Jerry would want uh, around supporting environmental, humanitarian, cultural uh, foundations, hunger causes. And we raise uh, money and donate it to these causes, uh, whether they be uh, uh, through music events, such as we just had one recently at the Blue Note Napa a few weeks ago at what would have been Jerry's 80th birthday. We had a great musician named David Nelson, who was a part of Jerry's uh, other band, if you will, the new writers of the Purple Sage. He had several. Um, 
and they performed live and all of that money was donated back to the foundation. And the foundation then makes grants to a number of different organizations uh, uh, to support these environmental and humanitarian uh, uh, causes. And it's, uh, how did I get involved? Um, I reached out. Uh, I, I was at that point running, if you remember, Matt, you and I used to work together on this too. I was a chief revenue officer of a very tiny company called Mashable that when I joined it had about 30 employees. And over three years, we grew it up to being a global business and for a while, a real powerhouse in terms of viral and social media. And uh, Keelan, who is uh, Jerry's youngest daughter, was a fan of Mashable. And so we connected over that. And uh, little by little, we've grown that relationship. And so I've been on the board of directors for the last few years. We produce musical events. We also um, often donate art that can be auctioned off for different uh, charities as well. As you know, Jerry was a prolific painter, uh, both in actual watercolor as well as with digital arts and, and, uh, and with uh, drawings as well. Um, and the art is truly beautiful and meaningful. Um, Jerry's music is deeply meaningful to me, um, not just because I discovered it in those really ripe uh, formative times of your early to mid-teens uh, and having been in the room with the man many times, but also because of the sense of he created a whole different uh, uh, American kind of music. To me, in the way, you know, a Monk and Coltrane created or a Joplin created a different kind of American music that people reduce these days down to jam band, but really it was this integration of bluegrass and rock and country and a little bit of funk and disco even at certain times and he brought them all together and made this very unique American music um, that to me is very meaningful. And, and it's the uh, uh, deep vein of jazz that weaves through the improvisational nature of his music is really what drew me in early on. But the very first Grateful Dead concert I ever went to was tied to a cause. It was in 1988, and it was a Rainforest Action Network benefit. And what a night. It was uh, uh, the entire Grateful Dead with Hall and Oates, uh, um, I'm trying to think, Mick Taylor, Suzanne Vega, and others, all on stage together. Um, and Bruce Hornsby, who then went on to become a, a temporary member of the band for a bit. And they used that platform to raise awareness around the environmental issues that they knew would only be exacerbated years later. And here we are, right, more than 30 years later. And they were right, of course. Um, before that, they had raised money uh, uh, for HIV causes. That's something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, that's I, I got my start in publishing for the HIV uh, positive community. And so both the music and the causes are on the right side of my heart. And being able to contribute and do even be somewhat adjacent to the great team uh, uh, that contributes to the Garcia Foundation is a real honor. And going back, Seth, whether it was from where Jerry and, and the band were from in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury or in the suburbs of L.A. at Laurel Canyon around those same time period in the 60s, the creative legacy that those communities created, which still resonates today, absolutely incredible and as you said they got a lot of stuff right yes and they one of the things they got right as the grateful dead in particular it's not doesn't as much apply to the Royal canyon musicians but the grateful dead always gave their music they gave their content away they were the first ever to invite people to record their concerts and share them right and and this really became a path that many of us now assume to be I, last night i was at billy joel at madison square garden 
And uh, in the middle of the concert, the pop, the young pop star Olivia Rodrigo came out on stage to sing one of her songs that mentions Billy Joel in the song. And so they sang it together. The number of phones that popped up to record this concert was almost uh, so bright that you couldn't see the stage, right? And yet it wasn't so long ago that it was illegal and you could be arrested for bringing a tape recorder into a concert. The only band that said, we will be better off if we give this music away and that will drive this deeper connection was the Grateful Dead. And that's the same model for media right now, which is they're giving it away to drive that deeper engagement and to get people to feel a connection. And so uh, I, they, I don't think that was their plan, but I think they were right about a whole lot of things. And I know they're a, a, an or, a group that divides a lot of people. Either they have a bad perception of what deadheads are, or they have a bad perception of the music being sort of like ongoing and never ending noodling. But um, like most things, if you acquire that taste, I think as Jerry once said, not everyone likes licorice, but the people who like our licorice really like it. Yeah, well said. And I think driving engagement and being engaging is at the core of you uh, as a business person, as just a regular, you know, great guy to be around. And I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I can't thank you enough for doing it. And I'd love to have you back and talk more about the future of news and news marketing and news as brands. I think it's vitally important for the fabric of society. Uh, and uh, love this conversation. So thanks for doing it. We're overdue. We're well into season three. So it's shame on me for not having you on sooner, but I'm glad we got it done today. I'm honored. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. As a marketer, you know it's crucial to spend your budget wisely. Mountain's self-serve platform, Performance TV, helps you do that with data-backed insights that take the guesswork out of measuring your ad's impact. With Mountain, you can track your connected TV ad performance in real time and see how it compares to your other channels with leading web analytics integrations. You can even see who's visiting your website or making a purchase after watching an ad, regardless of what household device they use. Visit mountain.com to learn more.